Hi, thank you for joining me. This is the Who I Became podcast, and I'm so glad that you are here. I'm Simon Osimo, a Brit living in America and a former UK police detective. Now, what is this podcast all about? Well, I've learned a thing or two about the power of a positive mindset, having been born into a mixed race family with an absent father. And I've seen many transformations in people's lives and had many transformations in my own life. And I want to share these life lessons with you. So each week on the podcast, I interview people like me who have found their life's purpose, overcome adversity, or created a positive mindset to help you kickstart your life and journey. Now, my guest today is Parisia Rose, a former D1 college athlete who on the outside had a full college scholarship and it looked like she had it all together. But behind closed doors, she was facing many life challenges from her relationship with her mother to addiction within the family. So let's dive straight into this week's episode with Parisia Rose. Rose, welcome to the Herbert Cain podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, and I'm excited because I am amongst greatness today. You are a swimming champion, aren't you? I've swam a few laps in my day. Yeah, a few laps. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I should say, coming from a guy who can swim around five, 10 meters and I like sink to the bottom. So I think my young son's swim instructor said that people either sort of float or they sink. And I'm definitely right. a sinker. So it's good to talk to you. Uh, about your experiences so I know that let's tell my listeners a little bit about your background so you're currently a sort of mind transformation coach personal trainer and a swim coach but uh, part of your background I was wondering what are my listeners going to get from this conversation and um, doing the research and talking to you I was quite surprised when you were a former D1 athlete mm-hmm. that it isn't all rosy and it's not all nice there's actually quite a lot of stress and pressure that comes with D1 athletes we're definitely going to dive into that and also you face a lot of adversity in your life so we're going to sort of tie those those two um together so mm-hmm. if you allow me I'll just talk about you so you are and me being English, I'm like, some of this stuff, I had to Google to work out what it means. But I know they're, I know they're great accomplishments, but you are an NCAA D1 athlete. You're a national swim champion, a five-time All-American, and you're a current holder of 20-plus swim records. Um, so maybe, Parisa, start there. Tell us about your, your swim career. Yeah, so I started swimming when I was 10, which to get to the level that I competed at, uh, that's considered old. Um, but I just considered old, it is considered old. Yeah. Even with a gymnast and other kind of sports like that. Yeah. 10 is you're, you're an old, old lady to start at that age. But, um, I didn't start it. I didn't start swimming to get good or to compete at a higher level. I just started it because my best friend, uh, joined the team and we did everything together. So we swam together as well. And it was within the first year that I really fell in love with the sport. And the aspect of being able to have your face in the water, not really talking to anyone and staring at a black tile line on the bottom of the pool hour after hour, day after day, doesn't seem glamorous and it doesn't seem exciting. But for some reason, I just loved it. And I ended up doing it for quite a long time. But um, yeah, I swam as a kid when I was 10 and went all the way through high school and didn't really plan on swimming in college because it wasn't this lofty goal for me. It was just... I want to show up every day and do the best that I can. 
And uh, soon I got some recruiting letters and some more recruiting letters. And I realized that I could go to a lot of different schools. And that opportunity was really cool. It was really amazing to, to just be able to have, you know. And it's interesting. I know one of the things, maybe some my audience, I should tell a bit about my audience, but it goes, um, for me being British, there's a lot of English um, listeners and then there's American and there's sort of 20 odd countries around the world that listen. So some people are thinking like me, what is an All-American? So you're five times All-American. Maybe just give us a, an elevator pitch as to what does that mean to, to become right, an All-American? I mean, that's a good question, actually. Um, so Hopefully in- you know the answer because right. you're one. So yeah. Right. So at different levels, it um, you qualify as an All-American in different ways. So okay. in high school, you are the top the top 100 of whatever event that you are swimming. If you're the top 100, then you're considered an All-American, like top 100 in the nation. So um, and then on a junior college level, if you are top three in the country, you are All-American. Um, and then it goes, you know, you start at 100 and then it, the list gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So um, it took me quite a long time to uh, to accrue that many titles. But but I mean, I could have had more, but I'm happy with what I had. But that's interesting, though, because it really level sets um, for me and for the audience as to, like I said, oh, I am amongst greatness because of the US being, what is it, 300 and 20 odd million. I'm sure the stats people out there are going to be saying, Simon, you're wrong, but it's somewhere in that number. It, it, it puts it into perspective as to what your accomplishment um, was. And I know now one of the things that you do sort of post that swim career, uh, you know, you're, you're a head coach of a, a women's swim team. And I think I read on your bio somewhere that you've led them to all American titles or seven all American titles in one single season. So you've obviously carried on that greatness in, into coaching as well. So, so what does, what does coaching give you? Coaching gives me an opportunity to use everything that I learned while I swam and everything that I understand about human behavior and combine the two, kind of just pour it onto the athletes. And I, I, one of my talents I feel when I swam was that I had really great body awareness and that is huge. That is key. And, uh, then be able to transfer that that body awareness to someone else and be able to just watch them, watch their mechanics and see how their body translates in the water. That's really what my, my secret sauce was to be able to have my own body awareness and then translate it to them. Honestly, I was kind of blown away at the success that we had those seasons. I did not expect it at all. Um, at our final meet at nationals, when all of the the titles just kept coming in and, and like the best times and the really incredible swims kept coming in. I'm like, this is a real thing. Like you put what you feel will work and you just do it relentlessly every single day without a doubt, no matter who thinks you're crazy, no matter, you know, what you need to sacrifice, you just stick to it. And uh, the result was there. So it was pretty cool. Well, well, and it's cool that you can give back some of your skills and experiences to help that sort of next um, generation. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the afterlife, because as you were talking then, uh, uh, sort of a story or time in my life was coming to me. I, you know, I was in the police in England and I used to work alongside a guy and he used to be a golf professional and he played off, you know, like sort of scratch. Um, and here was me, you know, like most golfers in the world, I hacked my way around courses, hoping that no one's looking and yeah. getting divots out and this type of stuff and I said to him one day I said why, why are you in the police I mean I looked at him like he was a god I mean this guy he was amazing I mean I've never seen anyone maybe like Bar Tiger Woods and these true pros swimming golf club like, like this guy did and he said Simon he said you reach a point where you're just not good enough 
And I was like, wow, but you're, you're amazing. You know, so he actually looked for a, for a different career. So I guess, did you, for all your highs of being a champion or the accolades, well, was there a point where you were thinking, why, why am I not good enough to pursue a, a sort of a full-time swing career or what, what happened there, there for you? That's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. I actually don't think that I peaked as an athlete. I don't think that I experienced the fullness of my career. And I feel that post swim life, all of these years have kind of created an opportunity for me to go back and finish that career, not actually in the water, but it's more on a metaphorical sense. And I feel that that because I didn't peak as an athlete and I, I finished my last race and technically retired, still knowing there was still something there and I hadn't yet gotten what I, what I knew I had put in, that's always left me with this hunger really to see what it is that I can do. I know I, I feel firmly that that's what has helped carry me through all of the things I've walked through and also all of the, the healing and the triumph that I've had throughout all these years too. And did you, I mean, reflecting back now, it's good that I stumped you with that question. You know, right. nice. like, when people do thousands of interviews in the sports career, it's nice to know you stumped them with a question. But I guess, um, you know, maybe not necessarily regret, but can you uh, remember that the time when you last swam in a sort of competitive competition, I guess? I mean, how, how old were you, to put this into perspective? Because uh, I know you said by 10 you were old to, to sort of start, but when was your last sort of competitive race? I was 22. So that's over 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, so what would, um, is there anything that you would do differently that time, knowing now what you know about that mindset when you said you sort of, you know, you've looked back and uh, yeah. there, was, there was unfinished there and you didn't feel you fulfilled your potential. Is there, what does that mean for you in that time? Yeah, um, I would have believed more in myself easily, hands down. I think that I relied heavily on the, the opinions of coaches, not in the sense of how they evaluated me, but in how they predicted something might go. And early on, I had an incredible, incredible high school coach. And uh, he told me before I went away to school, he's like, listen, you have a different build of a swimmer. Most swimmers are very tall. I am not. And, uh, and he's like, with that, you're going to be training, have the same training load, and your body is going to take training differently. So you need to learn right now how to like listen to your body and also find ways to give it what it needs because you need to be able to take care of your own body as an athlete. You cannot rely only on coaches or other trainers to help you. You have to take responsibility for your career and your swimming now. And from that point on, I did. And uh, that was the best advice I could have ever received because it really helped help me navigate the rest of my swim career. And towards the end, I stopped listening to myself as much. And so I think that's one thing I would have done differently. It's just gone back, gone internally, been like, all right, where am I at? What do I need? And uh, I just did the thing. So, and you know, when you talk to a lot of, I don't, I can't brag, but I know a lot of um, athletes are sort of stars, you know, but I know a sort of couple, but it's interesting as to what they have inside them, perhaps to, you know, like I said, I told you, I was talking about my friend in golf and stuff. What makes you become good? to be like really good and where mm -hmm. how'd you go from good to like world-class because quite often it's that mentality and as you were talking about that black tile on the on the floor of the of the swim yeah. swim pool for me I couldn't think of anything worse have my head down and watching I'll be trying to you know, stay to the top but it reminded me of my, my youngest son you know he's now seven but a couple of years ago you know he said dad I want to be the best soccer player in the world 
Mm. And I said, well, you know, to do that, you know, you, you can do it. You know, you, you just got to get out there and practice. And he's got one of these rebound sort of balls in the, in the backyard. Yeah. Um, and for an hour, I watched him as a maybe five-year-old bounce a ball against this rebound um, net and then he'd kick it in the goal. He'd get it again and he'd do it the repetition. And for me as his dad, it almost shocked me. I was thinking, wow, he really has a lot of patience. He has a lot of determination. Uh, and he has that sort of desire to sort of get really, you know, to, to, to get good. So I guess, yeah. do you think, is that looking back from your experiences as a sort of a, an old champion, is that something that you're born with or is that something that you develop? That sort of escapism of just being able to see that black tile and just keep following it time and time again, because 99% of the population were like, no, I'm bored with this now. I say I'm done, you know, but, but, but for those that can really overcome that and just build that consistency and repetition and what, um, what are you reflecting on that? Is that something that you have or is that something that you acquired or were you born with that desire? I think all of them. I think all, I think that there's something, I think there's something in everyone that can be built upon. I think that it's the environment that will activate it or awaken it. And I think it's the understanding of the person, even as a child, listen to what's going on in your mind. Cause we all have these thoughts. Cause I remember some of the thoughts I had as a kid and I'm grateful that I let myself just kind of wander mentally and swimming allowed me that opportunity to just wander mentally a lot. And um, yeah, I think it's something that you're born with, but I think everyone is born with something. And I think that whatever that something is, that thing can be absolutely cultivated and grown and developed into something really incredible, whatever that thing may be. But it really takes, uh, I think, a certain type of personality that will naturally lean into that kind of escapism mentality because it's not it is very mundane you know and to be able to just like thrive off of the mundane it's a personality type i think for sure but it's also a willingness to just do what you want to do yeah that's that is interesting um inside it is and, and dealing with the mundane i think for any athlete is when you're doing something consistently over and over again that is that is key and so let's talk a bit about that. You know, since I moved here to the US 10 years ago, I mean, people are obsessed with college scholarships. As a D1 athlete, I mean, you get all that given to you. And I was amazed that when we spoke offline, that you said something. And I was like, no, no, let's go back to this a second. Let's go back. Because it was the first time that I'd actually heard someone to say, well, maybe it's not actually all that rosy. It's not all necessarily that good to be given, you know, scholarships and stuff, particularly as an athlete, because they almost own you. You know, there's not too much freedom you have. So maybe yeah. share your perspective as to what your school um, sort of college was like when being a D1 athlete. You go into school a month before everyone else does. Obviously, it depends on your sport, but pretty much all D1, um, pretty high level D1 schools are all going to be like this because they're all they're all very competitive. So whenever school starts, which is sometime, you know, August, September, you're going to go to school about a month early and you're going to be training on campus for a month before school even starts. So if you have a summer break, it's a summer break. It's not really there. Um, so you train a lot. You You really get to just devote your life, like your social life becomes your team. And that part's really great because you have built-in friends, but you have to cultivate the friendships, of course. Christmas break, like all the holiday breaks, most of the time, if you don't live close to the school, you're staying on campus or going locally to go there for, for break. And still, that's okay. But sometimes you just need that retreat. You need that reprieve away from all of the, the stuff, the school. Like you need to go back to that home base sometimes. For school, I know that most schools have like about a month, three weeks to a month for a Christmas break. I had three days most of those years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really, you just get to sacrifice. Like, it's not just about the sport. 
it's about how the sport works into your life, but your life is cultivated around this entire sport. Then it comes first, always. And I guess also as you're growing up in and around sport, like you said, um, you know, by 10 years old, when you started swimming became very good, 10 years was, was considered old, I guess they're looking for people that have lived their entire life in a certain way where they've had that structure consistency. So I guess um, coming into that, I can see why it might be um, very, very different, but it's, um, yes, not the, not the glamorous life that you should imagine of like parties and everyone's giving you high fives and you're just, so I'm sure that, I'm sure that happens, but it, it sounds like that your, your life is quite restricted as to what you can and can't do. And I know you also mentioned similar to a lot of athletes, you just couldn't go and go like, you know, windsurfing or jump out of a plane because of all right. the insurance and stuff like that. So yeah you, yeah, you can't get injured, you know, no matter what you do, you can't get injured because if you're injured and you can't do enough physical therapy in time to get well for training or for whatever it may be, then you can only redshirt one year. And uh, the, the time frame, like the NC2A clock is a very strict clock in terms of when you can start, when you can stop, all of this stuff. It's a very strict science that they have there, which there needs to be because there's so many people in the program and the system that there needs to be structure to all of it for it to work well. But really, you know, it's, it's not as, as glamorous as it may seem because you really have this isolated experience of college, classes and academics a lot of uh, like study hall things that the NC2A system puts in place for athletes that are all required. And then your, your sport, you know, your training and that's life. So I don't regret it, but it's intense. Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself during that phase? That I don't go with the pack. Yeah. Um, I definitely was an atypical college uh, student. I wasn't really into the party scene and not because I thought it was bad or because I was always told that it wasn't something I should do. It just wasn't my thing. Um, I enjoyed making friends and having conversations and spending like quality time with people. That was really what uh, like lit me up outside of the sport. And um, yeah, so I think I fell into this aspect of where when my teammates did want to go out and socialize and do all like the typical stuff, the very few times we could, it just wasn't anything I really wanted to do. So just kind of doing my own thing. I learned that about myself back then. And I know, uh, just moving on to a different subject, but you mm-hmm. said that when you were uh, sort of 10 years old, you had this sort of chronic um, fatigue um, and you're, you're diagnosed with sort of chronic um, fatigue. And it's, uh, you said something interesting about you started to manifest um, tiredness. Um, so, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of the, the good achievements you've done. We're going to sort of move into yeah. some of the things that you've learned about yourself and experiences and, and struggles and stuff you've had. So maybe tell us a little about that, being diagnosed and then you recognizing that you were sort of starting to manifest tiredness. It's an interesting concept. Right. So, when I started swimming, um, I noticed, and it wasn't because of swimming, it was just because I did something so frequently, it, I think it brought it to the surface and to my attention, but I just felt tired all the time. After a while, my mom was like, you know, there's something up, like you shouldn't be tired. You're 10, you're healthy. Went to the doctor, went to all these specialists, did all the blood work, all the tests, everything came back perfectly fine, which is great. That's what you want to see, but something just wasn't clicking. How I felt and how I was showing up as a kid just wasn't registering with what all the tests came back as. And um, really there was no answers. It was just that I was tired. And so I just got used to just being tired all the time. Like I could take a nap at any point of the day. Even if I took, I slept for eight hours consistently every single night, it did not matter. I was exhausted all the time. So I just got used to like living tired. And you know what, when you get used to something, it just becomes your norm. But um, I noticed that 
because the the my experience of just being tired all the time and then the test results weren't matching up this uh, message of there's something wrong with me just kept coming to my mind and it was something that was repeated often to me as well like there's just something wrong there's just something wrong and so really that became my internal monologue that i repeated a lot like there's just something wrong and that it went from chronic fatigue to then a lot of other autoimmune illnesses and i noticed that by the time I was 18, I had a really hard time focusing. I had a really hard time recovering as quickly as I had before, just from practices and training. And uh, I didn't understand. I, I really had a hard time with comprehension in school. And I was like, am I going to even graduate? I had like straight A's. Okay, mind you. So it didn't matter what it looked like. It was always the belief of there's something wrong with me. And that belief of there's something wrong with me really manifested into um osteoarthritis into rheumatoid arthritis into seeing if there was like lupus situations like there was so much that it grew into where I became at 25 completely out of commission like I was in bed every single day and this is like I was a former athlete like it didn't make sense but just repeating that in my mind there's something wrong with me it manifested into a whole slew of other things and it's amazing how the body and mind, um, you know, just so go together that on one hand, which is why I wanted to take the listener on that journey is that they see you as this all-star athlete, but at the same time, sort of mentally, there were internal battles that you were, that you were having. So it's yeah. just, you know, it's almost like your body was most put on cruise control. You know, you were getting in and doing stuff, but your mind was saying, okay, there's, you know, we need to get on top of us here now. There's, there's something isn't quite, quite right. And I know if you don't mind sharing what you can, there is... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's also another significance as to why that black tile used to be so attractive to you. Right. And there was, it was quite a tough time in your childhood, your relationship with your, with your mother as well. So, I mean, yeah. share what you can around, around that time. I now have terms to describe it. Back then I didn't, because back then I just saw it as this is my mom and that's that. But now as an adult, I recognize that she had very typical narcissistic personality tendencies. And uh, without going into detail, that really impacts a child. It impacts a human being, bottom line. But as a child, growing up with, um, with, those, with a parent with those tendencies, you learn to question everything about yourself. And you learn to, confidence does not exist at, at all whatsoever. And to really be able to walk through life as a kid with this lens of not knowing when things would explode, <laughs> not knowing when an outburst would happen, always just having to predict things um, became very stressful. Now knowing like that's my greatest gift is being able to be so aware of what's going on around me. That is one of my strengths. But back as a kid, as a kid, kids are not supposed to take care of their environment. They're supposed to be nurtured in their environment. And that stress, although I didn't understand it as stress as a kid, because that was my norm, my relief and that that release was being able to stare at that black tile line and just kind of numb out. But it wasn't even the numbing. It was just like the releasing of just letting it just kind of come out of my mind while I go swim hundreds of laps during practice every day or a few times a day. That was my, my safe haven ultimately. And especially because I have to talk about it because your face is in the water the whole time. You can't talk. Yes. Yeah. Well, you actually just talk to yourself, but you know, it would just slow you down, wouldn't it? So so, I mean, yeah. you know, to, to go back how I started, I mean, you know, say, like you said, you know, you're, you're a D1 athlete, national swimmer, five all-time American, you know, you hold 20 plus swim records. Uh, you know, you've done all these things, 
But is it fair to say in your mind, perhaps for all those accolades, you weren't good enough or you weren't feeling the praise from um, from the family that, hey, you know, you're you're doing this, this these great things. Is is it fair to say that? <clears throat> Absolutely. I think also when you hide, not that you hide things, when you don't share things that you walk through and you go through and you 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 perceive that you get to just take it on yourself. That really impacts how you show up in, in life and show up to yourself. And it really shifts that internal monologue. And um, so when I was 18, it was my freshman year of college. I was away at school and uh, I was at the prime of my my athletic career. And uh, season was going really well. My times were great. I was having a blast. It was still a lot of newness because I was, you know, freshman year. And um, I experienced um, being raped. And it was right around Christmas time. It was right after Christmas time. And um, I remember growing up, I was told, and this is no fault to my parents, but it's just like, it's just the, the conversation around things like this. But I was told that if girls experienced that, it's because they were asking for it or they were behaving in a way that was suggesting it. And I know myself. And I know there's no way I, at all I would have ever suggested that that was okay or that I would have asked for that. And also I grew up in a home where like you take responsibility for what you do and how you show up. So if something happens, take responsibility for it. And um, I kind of took those mentalities and principles into my journey after that experience where I didn't feel like it was necessary to share it with anyone. I shared it with a very few friends, very few. Uh, I chose not to tell my parents because I felt like they would have been like, well, what were you doing to, to bring that to yourself or to have that happen? And it was awful enough, but I didn't want to feel like it was my fault more than I already felt like it was my fault. Because at that point, because I still had that monologue of, of there's something wrong with me, that automatically turned into, well, there's something wrong with me and that's why this happened to me. So I just want to take responsibility for it. And I turned all of that responsibility, is what I'd call it, because it's not really responsibility, it's just coping. I turned it into um, focusing on my, my goals and focused it on my athletic career and all of the other things I could place in front of myself to go after, like healthy things, I did. And guess what? I achieved basically all of them. And it wasn't until I was done with my swim career that I had not as much to pour into because swimming and anything at that level just requires all of you. And when I, I didn't have that opportunity to just pour all of myself into something, that's when the, the realization started coming up more and more and more. And that was about, you know, 23, 24, 25 years old. And like I mentioned before, at 25, I was completely in bed all the time because I couldn't get up. Like my body was just so sick. And I absolutely firmly believe it was not resolving that at 18 and not, you know, talking about it, not handling it, not even knowing what, how to handle it uh, really did affect my physical health and my mental health for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. It must be really hard when that activity in your life, which has sort of almost kept you on the straight and narrow, which has sort of held you together, which has been right. that sort of the, the calm in the storm of your life. Well, when that is over, it mostly sort of became a bit of a, a sort of what's next. I know you said that you sort of suffered from PTSD and sort of panic disorders. How did you sort of come back from that point then? Now, post-college, um, you know, the, the sort of swimming career is, um, is over. How did you sort of pick yourself um, back up? Yeah, well, so I didn't know it, but back then at 18, that's when uh, that's when PTSD kind of started to sit in my bones. And it was from that experience. And honestly, I had no idea. Um, I think that a lot of people can experience trauma 
and be very functional as well. Uh, I think most people can. And I think that with, with a lot of different coping mechanisms, we all can do a lot of great things, unfortunately, you know. But I put a lot of my focus into this external success or this this mentality of overachieving. But it's just because I'm a driven person, honestly, as well, that it kind of fed it. It wasn't until I got married, really, that I realized a lot of different fears that I had that they really started to pop up. Like I became fearful in situations when I had never been fearful before. But then again, when you become married, like life shifts 100% and uh, experiencing life with someone else now, they're your mirror. They get to show you all the things that you've not yet dealt with. In a, It's a really beautiful thing. It's That's what it gets to be and it should be. But when you've had trauma and you've not resolved it and you have no idea why these things are even coming up, it'll send your whole life through a loop. And because I hadn't resolved it before I got married, um, <clears throat> and then also like with the health issues, like my physical health issues, it was at 29, I believe. When I was 29, that's when everything just kind of fell apart. And I was like, I literally can't live life like this any longer. I, I had grown into panic attacks almost every single day. I was paranoid like crazy all the time. Depression and anxiety were rampant. It was insane. I couldn't even go to the store to get groceries. I became a professional at online shopping, made sure I took care of my whole family, our entire household, online shopping, and which is great. You know, it's a good skill to learn, but uh, not because you're suffering like that, you know, and I still wasn't seeing um, a psychiatrist or anything like that because I'm so, I don't say stubborn, I'm so resilient and I'm just willing to get the stuff done and I'm willing to also suffer in that process. But that's not a quality of life that anyone gets to live. It's awful. And it wasn't until um, really my husband left our marriage and he, he left and moved out that I was like, okay, what's, what's actually happening here? And uh, I knew things were bad with myself, but it was at that point that I was like, okay, if I can get better, I will do anything to get better. And um, that was my, you know, come to Jesus moment is what I call it. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because for all your um, sort of athletic accolades and things that you've done, there was a lot of, I wrote down a note, there was a lot of things that you did about you but there wasn't much in you that you weren't doing that self-reflection and you're not the only one because it takes a lot of us. I think I was most probably 33, 35, where I really started to do more internal work, you know, sort of yeah. would hide in plain sights in the world. And there was this outward Simon that had it all together and everyone saw sort of successful and inwards. So I was a, you know, a, a sort of a complete mess. It's very yeah. common that, that we, that we do that. But yeah, fascinating. And then so when you had that come to Jesus moment, I know one of the things that you said was very profound. We're talking about the, uh, uh, trying to break free from the trauma. And you said you had to find the authority of your voice and mm-hmm. exercise the authority of your voice. Um, right. well, how did all that come about? Yeah. So in that moment, in that coming to Jesus moment, I had a really hard time understanding why things were happening. And it's not like I needed the why to be clarified necessarily. But I'm saying this from the perspective of, like, I'm a rule follower. You tell me to do something, I'm going to do it the way it's meant to be done. Because I feel that there's value in following something that's already been tested and tried and true to work. And um, I, I felt like I honored my husband in all the ways that I understood how to honor him. I felt like I, I was upholding all of these things that I had been taught, but also that were important to me. And yet the result was not at all relative to what I felt like I was putting in. The thing is that I was giving it my whole heart. I absolutely was. However, 
putting in my whole heart from a very fractured state of self-worth will skew everything. I really, really, really needed to be able to identify, like really, really hold tight onto my identity, but discover it first. Like I needed to discover it first. I always had, like, I always knew my identity. I, I am a follower of Jesus. It, my faith is so important in my life. So to have my identity shook at that point, I'm like, but I have, I understand my identity. I don't get this. What's going on here? I follow the rules. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, it's considered like a good girl. Like, I don't understand these things. And um, at that point, I'm like, all right, God, you got to teach me. I, I need to relearn life completely. And as I started to relearn life is what I call it, which is really just learning how to perceive everything in life differently and being open to that journey. It came to a point where I said, you know, I was, I was talking to God one day. I was like, all right, listen, I fully accept all that's happening in life. I fully accept all the things that have happened. I'm in complete acceptance and acknowledgement of it. And I know everything in life happens for a reason. What do I need in this whole thing? What am I needing to learn? Why is it that like you've allowed these things to happen and come forward in my life? It's not a complaint. It's not a blame. It's just, what is it? And it came crystal clear one day, you need to learn the authority of your voice. And I'm like, you have a point. <laughs> like it was like the most simple thing ever. And that one statement led me to reflect on everything else that had happened in life up to that point. And I had never once really used the authority of my voice and everyone has authority within their voice but very few are actually taught that they do have that and they're encouraged to use it because it will ruffle feathers. It won't always be agreeable, you know, and um, most people are taught to live a very repressed life because of that. And so learning that I needed to learn the authority of my voice, I'm like, okay, what is that going to look like? Oh, I promise you, I got so many opportunities to really figure out what that was. And uh, now that I've learned the authority of my voice, I feel I'm in a season of where I get to exercise that authority of my voice. And that's been equally challenging as well, because it's, it's all just about being stretched, ultimately. Thankfully, I'm on this side of it. <laughs> well, and there is there's so much power in your story, isn't there? And I think in everyone's story, it's about sort of releasing that. There was a, a podcast episode I did often refer back to it with a gentleman called uh, Lewis Conway Joint Jr. He's in New York. I think he's originally from Texas. Mm -hmm. um, in his 50s now, but when he was in his 20s, I believe, he uh, murdered someone. Um, and then when he got released from prison, it was always a thing that he hid behind. You know, he would never tell anyone openly what he did because it changed their mindsets. And he said it wasn't until that he released himself from that burden that right. it finally set him free. And I think it is true that we all tend to hide behind something. And then when we're sort of, we're open, we're transparent, I've got troubles, I've got struggles, I'm, I'm doing mm -hmm. these things, I'm trying to prove myself. It, it does become very freeing in your mind, but it sounds like that you definitely, you've reached that point. 100%. And now I feel I'm so open about everything that I've experienced up to this point that, uh, you know, I've realized that every time I do share uh, something that I have gone through, because it becomes relevant for a situation or a conversation, there's so many people that relate to it. And they'll tell me time and time again, they're like, no one has ever talked about this before. Thank you for saying that. I'm like, to me, I'm like, oh, it's no big deal because I've already come into acceptance of it. And I've already released all the shame that I have formerly carried upon myself. Like I've released all that shame. Like it's not, it's not my job. It's too heavy. It's just, no, no more shame. You know, and the fact that I can talk about things without shame and allow them to have that conversation with me, but me not even knowing that, oh my goodness, it helps so many other people become enter into that process of deliverance of that stuff. And this stuff ultimately is just anything that they've held with shame. 
and walked with shaman. It's been, uh, that's the quickest, quickest way to, to get your life back is uh, release the shame. Just release it. Just nope, nope. Just keep going. You're human. Things are going to happen. You know, course correct, pivot, but release the shame. Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. Some of the good things that you're doing now. I mean, there is, you know, uh, we could mostly talk for two or three hours with some of the, I think if anyone of faith would listen to this podcast, if they, if they read the book of Job or just Google the book of Job and see what happened to that man, you know, your life is a bit like that. You know, I mean, there was you know, addiction in your family, you know, um, um, some a mental illness with, with your mother, you know, there's problems with, with your marriage, uh, you know, with your brother, there's so many things, but it's on, on the outside, people saw you as being successful, but you're dealing with all this stuff. It shows how we shouldn't be so quick to quick to judge when we say, Hey, that's just the athlete who's got a quarter of a million dollar free ride where she was actually right. hiding a lot of, a lot of brokenness. So you've taken all that learning. Uh, you've answered the question that I was going to ask you about, you know, how, what did adversity mean for you? You've really sort of um, learned how to, carry that and push it forward in a positive way. So what are you doing now, Parisia, to help um, other, other women? To put it in a nutshell, growing up with a parent that holds those narcissistic tendencies and then also having a family member who experiences paranoid schizophrenia and also then being an athlete, very disciplined athlete, that, although it wasn't the most exciting and glamorous and... Uh, enjoyable upbringing. It's groomed me to become a human that is so attuned to the world around me. I understand people without even having to talk to them because I've learned how to read body language. I've learned how to just become so in tune with all of the nonverbals and the things that are not commonly communicated that I become so in tune with, with just humanity as a whole, but also then being in tune with suffering from observing it, but then also experiencing it myself. So you add those two together and I mean, I get the chance and the opportunity to work with women to help them move past their traumas. And when I say trauma, I mean it by unresolved distress. So trauma can be a big thing, what people consider big things or even like little things because little things over time grow into big things. So really just helping women live life beyond the traumas and really help reframe how they view trauma and how they view the, the bad things in life, which are just things, because it's just life as a whole, and uh, really helping them walk through a life that they can truly be fulfilled. And, um, you know, it's honestly, it's the most rewarding, but it, it keeps me in check as well, that I get to keep myself in check, make sure I'm good, make sure I'm still doing what I get to do to keep myself, um, myself clear, you know, mentally. Well, and I like what you said there about um, unresolved distress and i think god asked my listeners uh, i'm smiling because everyone has some type of unresolved distress and i think i challenge them to to write down what theirs is or just reflect on it and say where, where's the best way to to get help because i think we all have unresolved distress but if left to fester it never ends up in a good way you know we've really gotta 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 challenge it so and so yeah. i know that you do some coaching as we sort of start to wrap up how can people uh, reach out and, and find you well right now probably the easiest way would be through instagram i have all ways to contact me there also it i'm pretty i'm pretty open on uh on my instagram as well in the sense of i share a lot of my story I've allowed myself to do that so that whenever people are needing to go to something or reference something, they can do it on their time, in their space, in their place, and not need to necessarily talk to me. Because I do talk about traumas. I do talk about some of the what are considered heavier things in life. And 
you can't always put an appointment time to talk about heavy things. Sometimes you just need to have that five minutes of escape and just to read something, get a different perspective, hopefully. And uh, yeah, so I like to have it. I'm not, I, I've grown to appreciate social media for what it is, but it's been a really great way to help bridge that gap to reach people where they're at and also contact me there. Well, and I know that you know, from your athletic career as a swimmer that was spoken about to some of the personal struggles that you've had, um, I know there's um, so many nuggets in there that are going to help other people um, and uh, become more reflective and, and either seek help if they need to or just understand that, you know, we're, we're not alone in a lot of this stuff uh, and, and hiding in plain sight you know, is is never going to be the answer. But sometimes you just got to grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and get out, which is easier said than done. It, it really is. But there, there are numerous ways to, to try and do it. So I'm uh, really grateful for your your time um, today and it's been um, an honor and a privilege to, to get to know you better so so thank you for joining me on the Herbicane yeah. podcast thanks for having me this was this was fun thanks thank you for joining the who i became podcast to help spread this inspiring story be sure to share it with your friends hit the like button and of course subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you. So leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to simonosimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.